You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, the collection of lectures Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery by Rudolf Steiner. Lecture 5 is entitled, uh, is, was given on the 11th of January, 1918. Our aim in these lectures is to speak of important questions of human evolution. And you have already seen that all sorts of preliminary facts drawn from distant sources are necessary for our purpose in order that we may have as broad a foundation as possible, I shall remind you today of various things that have been said from one or another standpoint during my stay here, but which are essential for a right understanding of the next two lectures. I have pointed out to you that in the evolutionary course of humanity, which can be regarded as primarily interesting us after the great Atlantean catastrophe, Significant changes took place in humanity. Some months ago I indicated how changes in humanity as a whole differ from changes in a single individual. As the years go by, the individual becomes older. In a way, one can say that for humanity, the reverse is the case. A human being is first a child, then grows up and attains the age known to us as the average age of life. In so doing, human beings, physical forces, undergo many changes and transformations. We have already described in what sense a reverse path is to be attributed to humanity. One can say that during the time following the great Atlantean cataclysm, geologists call it the Ice Age, religious traditions the Flood, during the time immediately following the great flooding of the earth, a real mutation took place, so that over the next 2,160 years, human beings were capable of developing in very different ways than was to be the case later. We know that at present, independently of our own actions, we can develop up to a certain age. We are capable of development by dint of our nature, of our physical forces. We have stated that in the first epoch after the great Atlantean cataclysm, humans remained capable of development for a much longer time. They remained so into their fifties, and they always knew that the process of aging was connected with a transformation in their soul and spirit. If today we wish to develop our soul and spirit after our twenties, we must willfully seek this development. We become physically different in our twenties, and in the process of becoming different, something comes to life and determines the progress of our soul and spirit. Then we lose our dependency on the physical. Our physical nature, so to speak, stops providing for us, and any further advance must happen through our own willpower. This at least is how things look from the outside. We shall, immediately, we shall see immediately how matters stand inwardly. <clears throat> things were quite different in the first... 2,160 years after the great Atlantean catastrophe. Human beings were still dependent on the physical element far into old age, but they enjoyed that dependence. 
They had the joy not only of progressing during their growth, but also of experiencing, even in the decline of their life forces, the fruit of these declining life forces as a kind of blooming of qualities of the soul, which human beings no longer can feel. Then came a time when humans remained capable of development only into their fifties. The external, physical and cosmic conditions of human existence changed in a relatively short time. In the second epoch after the catastrophe, that is, for another 2160 years or so during the old Persian epoch, humans remained capable of development until their forties. In the next period, during the Egypto-Chaldean epoch, humans evolved until the age of thirty-five to forty-two years. During the Greco-Roman period, the span reached to approximately thirty-five years. Since the fifteenth century, human beings develop into their twenties. External history does not tell us anything about this, nor does historical science believe it, yet an infinity of mysteries of human development are connected with it. One might say that the whole of humanity is getting younger and younger. We have seen what the consequences of this would be. Those consequences were not so pressing in the Greco-Roman age. A person remained capable of development up to the thirty-fifth year. But they are becoming more and more pressing, and are especially significant in our time. Humanity as a whole is living, so to say, in the twenty-seventh year, pushing twenty-six, and so on. Human beings are condemned to carry right through life whatever development of their natural forces has taken place in early youth, unless of their own free will they take their further development in hand, and the future of humanity will consist in human development receding further and further, so that a time will come when the views and opinions of youth will prevail unless a new spiritual impulse takes hold of humanity. We can observe external symptoms in humanity of this becoming younger. Anyone who looks at historical development with more sharpened senses can observe this process. It is observable in the fact that in ancient Greece, for instance, a man still had to be reached, excuse me, a man still had to have reached a certain age before he could take part in public affairs. Today large segments of humanity are demanding that this age be lowered as much as possible, since it is felt that people in their twenties already know everything there is to know. These demands will keep increasing, and unless some insight arises to slow them down, we will hear the claim not only that people in their twenties are clever enough to participate in parliamentary business, but that even eighteen and nineteen-year-olds contain in themselves all that a human being can encompass. At the same time, this kind of growing younger challenges human beings to draw to themselves from the spirit what is no longer given by physical nature. Last time I called your attention to the momentous break in the evolutionary history of humanity represented by the fifteenth century. Again, here is something of which external history gives no tiding, for external history, as I have often said, is a fable convenu. There must be an entirely new knowledge of the being of humanity. For only when such a new knowledge is attained will humanity find the impulse it needs if it is to take in hand of its own free will what nature no longer provides. 
We cannot allow ourselves to believe that the future of humanity will come from the thoughts and ideas which the modern age has brought and of which it is so proud. One cannot do enough to become fully aware of the necessity to seek for fresh and different impulses for the evolution of humanity. It is, of course, trivial to say, as I have often remarked, that our time is a transition age, for in reality each age is an age of transition, but it is a different thing to know precisely what it is that changes in a particular age. Every age is indeed a transitional age, but in each age one should look and see what specifically is passing over. I will link this to one fact. I could take hundreds of others from every part of Europe, but I will take one specific fact and let it serve as an example. In 1828, in Vienna, a number of lectures were given by Friedrich Schlegel, one of the two Schlegel brothers who served Central European culture so well. In these lectures, Schlegel sought to show from a lofty historical standpoint what the development of the time required and how these requirements should be given attention if the right direction were to be given to the evolution of the 19th century and the coming age. At the time, Friedrich Schlegel was influenced by two main historical impressions. On the one hand, he looked back at the 18th century, how it gradually evolved to atheism, materialism, irreligion. He saw how what had gone on in people's minds during the course of the 18th century ultimately exploded in the French Revolution. This, by the way, is not meant as a criticism of Schlegel, but merely as a factual description, a non-judgmental description of a human outlook. Schlegel saw a great one-sidedness in the French Revolution. To be sure, we might find it reactionary for a man like Schlegel to see the French Revolution as a great one-sidedness, but we would also have to look at such a verdict from other aspects. On the whole, it is fairly simple to tell oneself that this or that or the other was gained for humanity by the French Revolution. It is no doubt very simple, but there is a question whether someone who speaks thus enthusiastically about the French Revolution is altogether sincere in his inmost heart. A crucial test of this sincerity is this. One should consider how one would look at such a movement if it broke out around one in the present day. What would one say then? One should really ask this question of oneself when judging these matters. Only then does one have an acid test of one's own sincerity, for on the whole it is really not very difficult to be enthusiastic about something that went on so many decades ago. The question is whether one would be equally enthusiastic if one had to partake of it now. As I said, Friedrich Schlegel looked upon the French Revolution as the explosion of the so-called Enlightenment, the atheistic Enlightenment of the 18th century. Side by side with this event he set another, the appearance of the man who replaced the Revolution and who contributed so enormously to the later shaping of Europe, Napoleon. From the lofty standpoint from which he viewed world history, Friedrich Schlegel pointed out that when such a personality enters with such force into world evolution, he must be considered from a different viewpoint than the one generally taken. He makes a very fine observation when speaking of Napoleon, quote, One should not forget that Napoleon had seven years in which to grow familiar with what he later looked on as his task. For twice seven years the tumult lasted that he carried through Europe, and then 
he was granted seven more years after his fall, four times seven years. Thus was the career of this man." Unquote. I have indicated on various occasions the role of this inner law in the case of persons who are really representative in the historical evolution of humanity. I have pointed out to you how remarkable it is that Raphael always makes an important painting after a definite number of years. I have pointed out that Goethe's poetic powers always flare up in seven-year periods, whereas between these times there is a dying back. One could bring forth many such examples, and note that Schlegel did not look on Napoleon exactly as an impulse of blessing for European humanity. Now, in his lectures, Friedrich Schlegel shows what Europe needs to recover from the confusion brought by the Revolution and the Napoleonic Age. And he finds that the deeper reason for the disorder lies in the fact that human beings cannot lift themselves to a more all-embracing standpoint in their world conception, which indeed could come only from a deeper understanding of the spiritual world. The way Friedrich Schlegel sees it The consequence was that, instead of a shared human world conception, we have everywhere party platforms in which everyone looks on his or her point of view as an absolute, something which is bound to bring salvation to all. According to Friedrich Schlegel, the only salvation for humankind would be for each human being to be aware that he or she takes a certain standpoint and others take others, and any agreement has to be the outgrowth of life itself. No single point of view should gain a footing as an absolute. Now, according to Friedrich Schlegel, true Christianity is the one and only thing that can show people how to realize the tolerance he has in mind, a tolerance inclining not to indifference, but to strong and active life. And therefore he draws the following conclusion, and I must always emphasize that this is in 1828. The whole life of Europe but especially the life of science and the life of the state, must be Christianized. He sees the great evil in the fact that science has become unchristian, that states have become unchristian, and that nowhere has the true Christian impulse permeated scientific thinking or the life of the state. And he demands that the Christ impulse should once again permeate scientific life and the life of the state. Friedrich Schlegel was of course speaking of the science of his time and of the state of his time, 1828. But for reasons which will become clearer to us very soon, one could look at modern science and modern political life as he regarded them in 1828. Try for once to inquire whether the sciences that count the most in public life, physics, chemistry, biology, economy, political science, take the Christian impulse seriously anywhere within them. People do not acknowledge it, but all the sciences are actually atheistic, and the various churches take along with them, as they do not feel strong enough to really permeate science with the principle of Christianity. Hence the cheap and comfortable theory that the religious life makes demands different from those of science, that science must keep to the observable, religion to the feelings. Both are to be nicely separated. One direction is to have no say over the other. This way we can all live together. We can indeed, but it gives rise to the sort of conditions that exist now. Now Friedrich Schlegel's 
contribution at that time was imbued with deep inner warmth, imbued with his great personal impulse to serve his age, to help things along, to ensure that religion would not just be a Sunday school, but would be brought into all of life and particularly into science and into political life. And from the way Schlegel spoke then in Vienna, one can see that he felt hopeful that from the confusion started by the Revolution and Napoleon, a Europe would arise whose scientific and political life would be Christianized. The final lecture treated especially the prevailing spirit of the age and the forthcoming general revival. And as the motto for the lecture, which was powerfully delivered, he put the biblical quote, quote, I come quickly and I make all things new, unquote. And he used this motto because he believed that in the young people of the 19th century whom he was addressing lay the power to receive that which can make all things new. Anyone who reads through Friedrich Schlegel's lecture leaves them with mixed feelings. On the one hand, one says, how lofty the standpoints, how lucid the conceptions of the men who formerly spoke of science and political life. How one must have longed for such words to kindle a fire in countless souls. And had they kindled this fire, what would Europe have become in the course of the century? But I repeat, one leaves with mixed feelings. For in the first place, that is not what came about. What came about are the catastrophic events that now stand so terribly before us. And these catastrophes were preceded by a preparation in which anyone could have exactly seen that such events had to come. They were preceded by the age of materialistic science, which had become even stronger than it had been in Friedrich Schlegel's time, and by the age of materialistic statesmanship over the whole of Europe. And it is with sorrow that one now beholds the motto, quote, For lo, I come quickly and make all things new. Unquote. There must have been a mistake somewhere. Certainly Friedrich Schlegel spoke from utter conviction, and he was an exceptionally sharp observer of his time. He was able to judge the circumstances, but yet something must not have been quite right. For what did Friedrich Schlegel understand by the Christianizing of Europe? We can admit that he had a feeling for the greatness, the significance of the Christ impulse. He also had the feeling that the Christ impulse must be understood in a new way, in a new age, that we cannot stop short at the way earlier centuries had grasped it. He knew that. He unquestionably had a feel for that. Nevertheless, with this feeling, he leaned back onto Christianity as it already existed, Christianity as it had developed historically in his time. He believed that from the Vatican a movement could start of which it could be said, quote, I come quickly and make all things anew. Unquote. He was in fact one of those 19th century men who turned to Catholicism from Protestantism because they believed they could trace more strength in Catholic life than in the Protestant. But he was free spirit enough not to become a Catholic zealot. There is, however, something which Friedrich Schlegel did not say to himself. What he failed to say to himself was that one of the deepest and most significant truths of Christianity lies in the words, quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth's time, unquote. A revelation had not ceased, has not ceased. It returns periodically. And whereas Friedrich Schlegel's, excuse me, and whereas Friedrich Schlegel built upon what was already there, 
He should have seen, he should have felt that a real Christianizing of science and of the life of the state could take place only if fresh knowledge was drawn in from the spiritual world. He did not see this. He knew nothing of it. And this example, one of the most significant examples from the nineteenth century, shows us that again and again even the most enlightened minds fall prey to the illusion that it is possible to latch onto something already existing. We think that there is no need to fetch something new out of the fountain of youth. With these illusions people can say of course people can of course say things and carry out things that are great and brilliant, but it leads nowhere. Friedrich Schlegel hoped that nineteenth century Europe's science and political life would be permeated by Christianity. It must come quickly, he thought, this general renewal of the world, a general restoration of the Christ impulse. And what happened? A materialistic trend in the science of the second half of the nineteenth century, which made the ambient materialism Friedrich Schlegel had known in 1828 seem mere child's play. And the materializing of political life took place. We must know history, real history, not the fable convenu which is taught in schools and universities, of which, likewise, he could see nothing around him in 1828. <clears throat> Thus he prophesied the Christianizing of Europe, and was such a bad prophet that the materializing of Europe came about instead. Human beings willingly live in illusions, and this is related to the main problem occupying us, the problem that will become clear in the next few days. Human beings have forgotten how to become truly old, and we must learn again how to become old. We must learn to become old in a new way, and can do so only through a spiritual deepening. But as I said, this will become clearer in the course of our study. Our time is generally disinclined to it, but it must grow inclined for it. In any case, the forms of thought and feeling customary nowadays do not make it easy for people to familiarize themselves with, for instance, the spiritual challenge of anthroposophical spiritual science. This can be shown from various examples. Here is one that lies to hand. The day before yesterday I received a letter from a man of learning. He writes to me that he has just read a lecture of mine on the task of spiritual science, given two years ago. Footnote, the mission of spiritual science and its building at Dornach, and a footnote, and that he now sees that this spiritual science is, after all, something very fruitful for him. The letter has a thoroughly warm tone, a thoroughly kind, amiable tone. One sees that the man is gripped by what he has read in the lecture on the task of spiritual science. He is a trained natural scientist, a man of today, and he has seen from this lecture that spiritual science is not stupid or impractical, but can give an impulse to the time. But now let us look at the reverse side of the matter. Five years ago the same man had attempted to connect himself with spiritual science, to join a group where spiritual science was being studied, and had begged at that time to have conversations with me, which he had. <clears throat> he took part in meetings five years ago, and his reaction was such that the whole matter became totally repugnant to him, and he turned away so strongly that in the meantime he has become an enthusiastic panegyrist of Herr Freimark, whom you know from his various writings. Now the same man excuses himself by saying that it would perhaps have been better if instead of doing what he did he had read some books of mind and had made himself acquainted with the subject, but he had not done that. He had judged by what others had told him, 
and had gotten such a forbidding picture of spiritual science that he found it not at all suited to his own path of development. Now, five years later, he reads a lecture and finds this not to be the case at all. I quote this example, and there could be many more, of the way in which people relate to what in our time desires a Christianizing of the sciences, a Christianizing of all political life, not in the sense of Friedrich Schle- not in the sense Friedrich Schlegel meant it, but in the only viable way. I give this as an example of the thought habits of our time, in particular of the scientific thinking of our time. Here is a man who approached the anthroposophical movement, had some talks, took part in group meetings, felt disgruntled about the participants in these meetings, and what they had to say to him, concluded that he had to accuse anthroposophy as a whole, and became an enthusiastic panegyrist of Herr Freimark, who has written the vilest articles about spiritual science. Five years later the same person decides to really read something. In other words, the fact that some people today are abusive or agree with the abuse is no proof that deep down they might not have a natural tendency to attach themselves to anthroposophical spiritual science. If they have as much goodwill as the man in question, it will take them five years. Some need ten, some fifteen, maybe fifty, and many so long that they can no longer experience it in this incarnation. You see how little people's behavior is any kind of proof that they are not seeking what can be found in anthroposophical spiritual science. I bring up this example because it points to the profoundly important fact I have often mentioned, namely that people do not have an easy time getting to the heart of the matter, that they hold on to inherited prejudices which they will not let go. And that is connected with other matters too. One need only transpose oneself in feeling into those ancient times of which I spoke earlier today and on the previous days. Think of a young man, right after the Atlantean cataclysm, in his connection with other people. He was, say, twenty, twenty-five years old. Near him was someone forty, fifty, or sixty years old. He could say to himself, What a happiness it will be some day to be as old as that, for as one lives one goes on experiencing more and more. There was a perfectly obvious, immense veneration for one who had grown old. A looking up to the aged, linked with the consciousness that they had something else to say about life than other people did. It is not enough to understand this theoretically. What matters is to have it in one's own feelings and to grow up under this impression. It is of infinite consequence to grow up in such a way as not merely to look back at one's youth and say, Ah! How fine it was when I was a child! This beauty of life will never be taken from human beings by any kind of spiritual reflection. But it is a one-sided reflection, which in olden times was supplanted by the other. How beautiful it is to become old! For, to the same degree that one became weaker in body, one grew in strength of soul, one grew into union with the wisdom of the world. At one time this was an accepted part of training and education. Let us now look at another truth, which I have mentioned here and there to our friends, although I have not talked about it in this week yet. We grow older, but only our physical body grows older. For, from a spiritual standpoint, it is not true that we grow older. It is a maya, an illusion. 
It is certainly a reality in respect to physical life, but not in respect to the full nature of a human being's life. Yet we have the right to say that say this only if we know that the human being who lives in the physical world between birth and death is something more than just a physical body. He consists also of higher members than that, which we call the etheric body or body of formative forces, and then the astral body, the ego. Let us look at these four parts. But even if we stay with the etheric body, the invisible, supersensitive body of formative forces, we see that we carry it within us from birth to death, just as we carry about our physical body of flesh and blood and bones. We carry in us this etheric body of formative forces, but there is a difference. The physical body grows ever older, the etheric body is old when we are born. In fact, if we examine its true nature, it is old then and becomes younger and younger. So one can say that our primary spiritual members become steadily stronger and younger as the physical corporeal members become weak and powerless. And it is true, literally true, that when our faces begin to get wrinkled, our etheric body blooms and becomes chubby-cheeked. Of course, the materialistic thinker could say that this is completely contradicted by the fact that it is impossible to perceive it. In ancient times, nature itself brought it about in due course. In modern times, it is almost an exception. But even so, there are exceptions. I remember speaking once of a similar subject at the end of the 1880s when Edward von Hartmann, the philosopher of the unconscious, we came to speak of two men who were professors at the Berlin University. One was Zeller, a Swabian, then seventy years old, who had just petitioned for his pensioning, having gotten it into his mind that, quote, I got so old I can no longer hold my lectures, unquote. At seventy-two he was indeed old and frail. And the other was Michelet, who was ninety-three years old, and Michelet had just been with von Hartmann and had said, Well, I don't understand Zeller. When I was as old as Zeller, I was just a young fellow, and now, only now, do I feel fitted to say something to people. As for me, I shall still lecture for many long years. But Michelet had something in him of what can be called having grown young in forces. There was, of course, no inner necessity for him to grow that old. For instance, a tile from a roof might have killed him when he was fifty years old or earlier. But having grown that old... In his soul he had, in fact, not grown old, but precisely young. Michelet, however, in his whole being, was no materialist. Even Hegel's followers have in many ways become materialists, not that they would agree. But Michelet, although he spoke in difficult sentences, was inwardly gripped by the Spirit. Only a few, however, can be so inwardly gripped by the Spirit. But this is just what anthroposophical spiritual science is seeking to give something that can be of value to all human beings, just as religion must be of value to all human beings. But this is connected with our whole training and education. Our whole educational system is built entirely on materialistic impulses, and this must be seen in a much broader perspective than is generally done. Only people's physical bodies are considered, never their becoming younger in spirit. No account is taken of one's growing younger as one grows older. At first glance, this is not always immediately evident. Nevertheless, all that has been built up into the subject matter of pedagogy and education 
considers human beings only in their youth, unless they happen to become professors or scientific writers. Rarely does one find people who care to take up in later life, when they no longer need it, the material which is presently absorbed in one's school days. I have known doctors who were leaders in their speciality. That is, they had so passed their student years that they had become leaders in the field. But there was no question at all of their continuing the same methods of acquiring knowledge in later years. I once knew a very famous man, I will not mention his name, he was so renowned, who stood in the front rank of medical science. He made his assistant attend to the later editions of his books because he himself no longer took part in science that did not suit his later years. This is connected, however, with something else. We are gradually developing a consciousness that what one can absorb through learning is really of service only in one's youth and that one gets beyond it later. And this is the case. One can still force oneself to turn back to many things but then one must really force oneself, as a rule, it doesn't come naturally. And yet, unless a person is always taking in something new, not just getting it through the concert hall, the theater, or with all due respect, the newspaper or something of that kind, then that person grows old in soul. We must absorb in another way. The soul must really feel that it experiences something new, unformed, and that one can react to what one takes in just as the child reacts. This cannot be done artificially. It can happen only when one can approach something in later life precisely as one approaches ordinary educational subjects as a child. But now take anthroposophical spiritual science. We need not puzzle our heads over what it will be like in later centuries. The right form will be found in due time. But in any case, the way things stand now, however many people may dislike it, there is no primary necessity to cease absorbing it. No matter how aged one may have become, one can always find in it something new that grips the soul and makes it young again. And many new things have already been found on spiritual scientific soil, even things that let one probe the most important problems of the day. But mostly the present needs an impulse which seizes the person directly, only in that way can the present time come through the calamity upon which it has entered and with such disastrous effects. The impulses in question must approach human beings in a direct fashion. And now, if one is not Friedrich Schlegel, but a person with some insight into humanity's true needs, one can nevertheless keep in mind several of Schlegel's beautiful thoughts and rejoice in them. He said that things must not be treated as absolutes from a single standpoint. At first he saw only the political parties, which regard their own principles as the only ones that can guarantee universal happiness. But in our time, many more things are being treated as absolutes. Above all, a perception is lacking that in life an impulse might be harmful on its own, yet be beneficial in cooperation with other impulses, because it then turns into something else. Think, if you will, and I will make a sketch, of three tendencies which run concurrently. The first direction will symbolize for us the socialism toward which modern humanity is striving, although it is not precisely the current popular or Leninist socialism. The second line symbolizes what I have often described as freedom of thought, and the third direction is spiritual science. 
These three things belong to one another. They must work together in life. There, there are three arrows pointing in toward the center. On the left, coming down toward the right, is it says Araman Socialism. The arrow from the right, coming down, uh, says Lucifer, Freedom of Thought. And one coming from below upward says the representative of humanity, spiritual science. If socialism, in the crude materialistic form in which it appears today, attempts to force itself upon humanity, it would bring down the greatest unhappiness upon humanity. It is symbolized for us by the Aramonic figure in the group sculpture. It represents Araman in all his forms. If the false freedom of thought which wants to stop short at every single thought and hold it for valid seeks to force itself on humanity, then again harm is brought upon humanity. This is symbolized in our group by Lucifer. But you can exclude neither Araman nor Lucifer from the present day, although they must be balanced by pneumatology, by spiritual science, which is symbolized by the representative of humanity in the sculpture. I must repeatedly point out that spiritual science is not meant to be merely something for people who have cut themselves adrift from ordinary life through some circumstance or other, or who want to be stimulated a little by exposure to all sorts of things connected with higher matters. Instead, spiritual science, anthroposophical spiritual science, is meant to be connected with the deepest needs of our age. For the nature of our age is such that its forces can be discovered only by looking into the spiritual world. This is connected with the worst evil of our time, which is that countless people have not the slightest idea that social, moral, historical life is ruled by supersensible forces. <clears throat> Indeed, just as there is air all around us, so too supersensible forms hold sway around us. The forces are there, and they demand that we receive them consciously in order to direct them consciously. Otherwise they can be led astray by the ignorant or those who lack understanding. In any case, the matter cannot be trivialized. We must, be, we must beware the idea that one can point to these forces the way some people tell the future from reading coffee grounds and so forth. Nevertheless, in a certain way, and sometimes in a very close way, the future and its shaping are connected with realities which can be known only by starting with the principles of spiritual science. People will perhaps need more than five years to see this, but it is simply a fact, and I realize this may sound ridiculous to you as I say it, although in any case the day will come when it will be possible to acknowledge it. That is what is now heard as Wilson's call to arms had been predestined to happen. And there are people in this room who can attest to the fact that this call to arms was thought about in the right way. It is not easy to talk about those things, but the events of our time keep calling our attention to the fact that people need to note that some things can be understood and judged rightly only from the standpoint of anthroposophical spiritual science. The end of Lecture 5